1: Welcome, everyone, to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Another episode for you today in the special Jack the Ripper series. I am so pleased to introduce today's guest, Dr. Drew Gray. He is a social historian who specializes in 18th and 19th century crime and punishment. He is a fellow of the Royal Historical Society, and he is the head of the History Department for the University of Northampton. He has written a number of historical true crime-themed books, including London's Shadow, The Dark Side of the Victorian City, Murder Maps, Crime Scenes Revisited, Phrenology to Fingerprint, 1811 to 1911, and the focus of today's conversation, Jack and the Thames' Torso Murders, A New Ripper, which he co-wrote with Andrew Wise, by the way. Thank you so much for accepting my invitation. Great to have you.
2: Thanks, Eric. It's great to be here.
1: So the books that I mentioned in your introduction, they they spend some or all of their focus on the Victorian era. What is it about this time period that that interests you?
2: Mm. Yeah, I I think that the... um the 19th century is fascinating in lots of ways. Um, there's lots of change going on in society. I mean, this is where the Industrial Revolution kicks off. It's where um, cities are growing, urban spaces, which I think we probably associate most with crime. It's certainly on this side of the Atlantic. And it's where technology is developing. So people have a greater access to news to to stories of stories about crime and that's one of the things which um I think has fueled our interest in crime has been the fact that it's been reported in newspapers and course, when we move into the the modern world with with photographs and and video and film we we bring that into our our living rooms much more readily but but actually the nineteenth century is where everything develops it's where policing develops in in uh, most parts of the world. And I think it's kind of where our fascination and hook into crime and criminality really develops.
1: And what about the Jack the Ripper murders? You've written extensively about the 19th century. You know all about it, especially as it relates to London. Do you think it was a natural step for you to start researching the most infamous series of murders from this era? (laughs) Uh, I, I always wonder... There are so many people who have such strong opinions about the case. What motivates someone to step into the void, <laughs> the chaos?
2: Well, I think a lot, of, a lot of my fellow crime historians have said, why? Why would you go anywhere near it? <laughs> um, and I, I I started off, I mean, my, my postgraduate, my, my PhD, my doctorate is in the history of 18th century London magistrates. It's about as far away as you can get from Jack the Ripper, to be quite honest. Um, it's a good a good 100 years before, and it's dealing with petty crime. And actually, I, I think my main research interest is probably still, you know, I've got a book that will come out next April called Netherworld, and it's all about petty crime in London. It's all about the magistrates in, in the Victorian period. Um, but I think that... <laughs> Every time you go to a dinner party, if we still go to dinner parties, and somebody says, what do you do? And you go, I'm a historian. And and their face falls. And then they go, "Um, a historian of what? And I go, a crime. And their face lifts. And they're like, oh, that's interesting. So I'm I'm kind of in here. They want to listen to me. And then the second question that comes after that is the follow-up question to you're a historian, you're a historian of crime, is who was Jack the Ripper? And I think I kind of resisted it for years. And then when I got a job at Northampton, the University of Northampton, where I still teach, they needed me to provide them with a new, a new course, a new module. I, I was already going to come in and teach their basic crime course, but I wanted something extra. And I thought, well, actually, if you can explore Jack the Ripper, you can explore London in the night. In the 19th century and it's really fascinating so the story of jack the ripper when placed in the context of 1880s london and the british empire and society and all that change allows you to explore so many topics so i still teach this module. Yeah, I must say it's developed quite a lot in the last sort of 15 years. But it allows me to teach the murders, but also to get students interested in talking about society, about poverty in the East End, about immigration, about political change. And I think maybe they wouldn't have come to that if I'd said, yeah, this module's about poverty and immigration and you know politics. They'd probably gone, ah, you're right, Drew, I'm going to swerve that one. But when you say it's about jack the ripper ah now suddenly they're interested and that's back to the dinner party thing when you say you're a historian mm, they're not so interested when you say you're a historian of crime who writes about jack the ripper oh suddenly everybody wants to talk to you so i think you kind of fall. i kind of fell into it in in that way but actually the case is fascinating and i can understand why so many people have been so interested in this case for so many years because there's so many twists and turns and so many ways to look at it
1: right where in your research did James Hardiman enter the picture for you? Did, did you see him right away as a suspect that deserved more attention, or did it take some convincing for you?
2: Well, certainly it took quite a lot of convincing. I mean, Andy Andrew Wise, who wrote the, the book with me, um, was a student of mine. And um, one of my much better students, what you would call an a star student, um, his work was of really top quality. And Andy came to me one day and said, I wasn't interested in Jack the Ripper, a bit like me. I wasn't interested in it at all until I took your your class. And, I, I, and then I was kind of like fascinated by it. And he would started to do some digging. And he'd come up with this old article in a, in a Ripperology magazine that had cited, presented James Hardiman as a potential suspect. And it was an interesting article. And he'd looked on the message boards on the facebook.org site which is the kind of premier site for ripper studies in certainly in the united kingdom and um he said well they haven't really hasn't really gone anywhere and i think there's something in this so i'm going to look at it so i said you know a bit skeptical i said well yeah you know, beat yourself up go (laughs) go away and look at it and he did and he came up and he started he started presenting me with material which i thought okay let's let's look at this so we did, and we started to, you know, go down to archives and dig out material, and we spent a lot of time and a lot of shoe leather wandering around Whitechapel and other parts of London. And um, and I guess that his enthusiasm for James Hardiman kind of rubbed off on me a bit, and so I to, to to think about it a bit more. And he said, you know, shall we write a book on it? And I immediately went, oh, uh, no, I'm not doing a a solutions book on jack the ripper in fact in london shadows i kind of <laughs> i kind of say no i'm not interested in finding out who jack the ripper was because it's a it's an impossible quest but i think i landed on the idea was okay it's almost like a parlor game which i think is how paul beck has often described ripperology paul, De- paul Beg being one of the foremost ripperologists and someone i count as a friend it's this idea of like let's do the intellectual challenge of trying to work out the sort of person who could have committed that awful series of murders and let's see whether we can we can we can put somebody in the frame. And I think that Hardiman, Andy was able to persuade me that, that actually that exercise would work with him because we could find out, well, we could present him with a, a reasonable series of, of bits of evidence and speculation combined that would make a reasonable case. You know, so to make him a, a kind of entirely credible suspect,
1: that makes sense, yeah. So, would you tell us more about James Hardiman? What is known about his early life?
2: Yeah, it's, everything's a bit sketchy, Eric. As 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 we would all know, looking tracing working class lives going back into the past is incredibly difficult because working class people don't conveniently leave a lot of records behind for us to to trace. But we think that James was born in London about 29, 30 years before the Ripper murders start, which puts him in the right sort of age bracket for most of the, most of the, the witness statements and most people's speculation about the killer as being somebody between 25 and 35. He's within that range. range. We know that um, he was born in and around Whitechapel, he, grew, he certainly grew up around there. Um, we, we can place him living in various parts of London, including Hanbury Street in, in White in Whitechapel, including Clerkenwell, possibly in other parts of the city, um, the city of London. So, f- for your listeners, Clerkenwell is is kind of just off the the centre of the city, city of London, but at various locations in and around. Whitechapel, so Greaterick Street, for example, which is just off Brick Lane, which is 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 kind of one of the key arteries running through the, the Spitalfields and, and Whitechapel district. We think that um, well we know his family, going back to his his maternal grandfather, had been involved in the meat trade, so they seem to have been butchers. They were cats meat men. So just to explain that, that meant that they were selling um, probably horse meat. Um, which is a byproduct of the slaughter trade. Uh, so everything in London is driven by horses in the same way that everything in London today is, is the car. So there's a lot of horses, they, they die, they get injured, they get slaughtered. There's an excess of horse meat. and um, People don't generally eat horse meat in this country. So, it you know, horses get boiled down for glue. And one of the byproducts of the meat is it's sold as pet food. And that's what we be called cat's meat. There is some suggestion, even Dickens made it, that some of the working classes, the poorer, might have eaten that, um, because it's, it's meat after all. But we think his family is involved in that. So we, we can place him in and around there. We are probably more controversially because we can't prove this, but then we can't prove he wasn't. We think he was probably engaged with one of the the big, or well, the big slaughterhouse. Um, sort of um, yard firms of London, a firm called Harrison and Barber, who pretty much had the monopoly by the 1880s on all horse slaughtering in the capital. And you couldn't, it wasn't just anybody that could slaughter a horse. You had to call out the knacker, as, as colloquially termed. So there's yards all over the capital, which potentially, we believe, Hardiman could have had access to so I think that's his, his kind of background. So this is a man who's grown up in and around Whitechapel, and he um, has worked at some in some level in the meat trade. He's used to cutting things up. He would probably be a familiar character on the streets, but a very ordinary character on the streets. So that's our, that's our first kind of background on him.
1: Yeah, yeah. And the, the fact that he was a horse slaughterer. That's important, right? Partly because of one of the Ripper letters. In one of the letters, the writer claims to be a horse slaughterer.
2: It's mentioned, certainly, a slaughterers are mentioned in the Ripper letters. They're also the subject of the police investigation very soon after Polly Nichols is um, found, the, the first of the canonical five victims who's found in Bucks Row, right, actually right around the corner from a Harrison and Barber yard the slaughter men are um, interviewed um, or several of them are interviewed that that night or the next day by the police and there is a sense and it, uh, it's not just in the letters it's also uh, referred to in some of the reports of the different doctors and I would accept we would accept that you know, there's not a consensus about what the, doc- the doctors didn't agree with each other I mean hey academics not agreeing with each other what do you expect but it is put forward that the sort of person that could have committed the Whitechapel murders, bearing in mind that these are murders which involve not just cutting a woman's throat, but also, in, in some cases, removing organs from their bodies, probably the tropes that, that are most associated with that are that the, the killer was either a doctor, a butcher, or a slaughterman. So Hardiman would fit two of those potentially fit two of those categories he's not a doctor
1: right right and you have a physical description for him too right a general build and height
2: yeah we we reckon he's you know in his in his you know it's difficult with physical descriptions but um just just got a sort of general sense of general sense of him he's five foot five foot six, five foot eight, something around that sort of size. Um, that he he bears some of the that we 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 suspect he would have what they might call a shabby genteel appearance, which would be of someone who would be looking like they were on the way up trying to look better than they are. I don't know if that's a phenomenon that you would have in the in the States that would be understandable, but someone who kind of dresses slightly to impress to, to sort of look look more respectable to use a Victorian term, more better off, more educated than they are. Someone who wants to get on in the world. But also with Hardiman, some sense that he's got we suspect that he was suffering from oh we're we're fairly sure, but it's again we haven't got the medical records. We're we're fairly convinced that he's suffering from syphilis, a sexually transmitted disease. And that um That would have been evident in colorations of his skin, um, which he potentially tried to conceal by wearing a scarf. Several of the witnesses' statements have people wearing scarves. And um, and of course, that might be just to fashion. It might be to keep the cold out. But we think that this is potentially because he's trying to conceal discolorations of of his face because of his suffering from particular disease.
1: Why do you believe he had syphilis?
2: We think that it's quite likely that, uh, and it's interesting, I think, in the way that he might have got it, but we can come, perhaps I'll come back to that. But we think that uh, he and his wife, Sarah, were married, I think, for 11 years and they had no children until 11 years. And then then, then Sarah gave birth to a daughter who was quite sickly and died. Um, Sarah herself then died about a year later. She went into hospital in June 1888, and she she died around the September, I think, and we think that was of syphilis. We we also have some some evidence. In fact, it's new stuff that Andy's, Andy's been digging out because he's not giving this up as a as a as an idea that um, potentially two of um, James's siblings a brother and a sister had died potentially of syphilis it looks like it and syphilis can manifest itself in all sorts of ways and uh, it, can, it, can, it can have physical consequences and it can also have um, mental consequences and um, we think that it's potentially I mean so for example Samuel his brother died of meningitis and Sarah died of epilepsy um, and they both are linked to syphilis um so syphilis could be the underlying cause of both of those conditions i appreciate that people die of meningitis and epilepsy doesn't kill people generally today without having syphilis but they are known at the time as 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 connected the other thing is that it, it can cause a, a form of mental illness and um his brother committed suicide post the ripper murders when actually, in many other respects, his brother was doing quite well. He was a craftsman. He was he was work, working with a craft skill, and really, he was he was on the up. So there was no particular reason for that, but we think it might be to do with his poor mental health. So there's lots of things that are suggestive of it, and it that's important because it's one of our driving motivations for James that if he had. And there's two ways of looking at this. Either he himself had contracted syphilis from a prostitute, which he then might have felt that he'd passed on, because it can be passed on in hereditary form, passed it on to his wife, potentially it had gone through into the the daughter, the, the infant. But there's also a suggestion that it's possible that his mother, who we also have some speculative evidence that she might have been involved in prostitution at some point in her earlier life. She might have contracted syphilis and therefore, in fact, passed it on to James hereditary, um, which he'd then given to his wife. So his kind of hatred of prostitutes and prostitution, we think, is a, is a potentially powerful motivating factor in him deciding to attack what the Victorians would have called as unfortunates. I am well aware that there is a discourse out there which suggests that not all the victims of Jack the Ripper were prostitutes, even the canonical five. But um, I think it would be fair to say that while Hallie Rubenhold's book is very interesting, the jury is probably still out on it.
1: So this trauma that he could have been suffering from due to his wife, it, it might have been a trigger, right the, the murders were happening in the same general time as her illness and death
2: yeah I and mean, it works on two on two levels actually eric because the trauma of this um well there'll be various things playing onto to james's mind here his his sister had died in 1885 and that may well have been a trigger for for some of his a- actions um because again we have to recognize that serial killers don't necessarily come fully formed and Polly Nichols was probably not the first person that he attacked, but then his daughter 's death and then his wife 's death in in eighteen eighty eight would fit very very neatly. but I think the other thing that 's important is is his wife going into hospital because alongside motive you need means and you need opportunity and We would suggest that the motive is syphilis and the hatred of prostitution. The the means is his skill his knife skills gleaned as someone who's used to cutting up flesh and his opportunity is the free licence he have, the freedom of movement he has, particularly after Sarah goes into hospital, because he doesn't have a wife at home to say, Where have you been and why are you coming home at this hour? And what's that bloody knife doing in your back pocket? Sort of thing, if I'm without being too flippant about it.
1: We will be back after a brief break. Hello all, Eric here. So you can't fully understand the moment we're living in without knowing where we've been. On every episode of NPR's Throughline, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? If you are interested in the stories behind today's news stories, or learning how the past informs the present, you're going to love the Throughline podcast from NPR. I've listened to and enjoyed many episodes of ThruLine over the years and learned about a number of historical figures that I had never heard about before. And I've gotten insights into well-known historical events. Throughline approaches these figures and events from really interesting new angles, often telling a completely different story than the one that's typically told. Here's an example, an episode I particularly enjoyed. It's called The Lord of Misrule, and it's about a man named Thomas Morton, an early New England colonist, who butted heads with William Bradford, governor of the Plymouth colony. And Morton would end up publishing a book critical of the Puritans, a book that is considered to be the first book ever banned in American history. So let Throughline take you back in time to the source of the stories filling your feed. Listen now to Throughline from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Hey all, it's Eric. So eating better is easy with Factors' scrumptious ready-to-eat meals. Don't feel like prepping, cooking, or cleaning and tired of takeout? Every Factor meal is fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted, and ready to go in just two minutes. There are 35 different options to choose from each week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor is really flexible for busy schedules, too. Get as much or as little as you need each week, pause or reschedule deliveries anytime. There are breakfast and midday bite options, too, like pancakes, smoothies, and more. And of course, made with premium ingredients. And Factor has done the math it's less expensive than takeout. In each meal, dietitian approved to be nutritious. The other day, I downed the salsa shredded chicken thighs with sweet potatoes and Southwest veggie medley. A perfect amount of spice, I thought, and really, really delicious. So head to factormeals.com slash Notorious50 and use code Notorious50 to get 50% off. That's code Notorious50, at Factormeals.com slash Notorious50 to get 50% off. I highly recommend Factor and really hope you enjoy it as much as I do.
3: Cheers. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And we have returned. Could you tell us about the significance of the address 29 Hanbury Street?
2: Well, twenty-nine Hanbury Street is the is the is where it's in the yard at the back of twenty-nine Hanbury Street is where the body of Annie Chapman, the second canonical victim of the Ripper, was found. So, um, the Hardimans actually were living in the front of that in the front of that house. It's a house of multiple occupation, as many houses in Whitechapel and Spitalfields were. So, you know, they would be typically you'd see a victorian property there and in 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 hanbury street they tended to be two properties next to it with an alleyway kind of uh, so you you go in through a central door and it would open out there'll be a corridor that would open onto a series of doors and they would be the rooms that various different families would live in that was the kind of norm so they'd all share a front door which was often left open 29 hanbury street was generally left open and then there was a yard at the back so I, I wouldn't gratify it by calling it, a, glorify it by calling it a garden. Um, I think the, the, the term yard, which I think is a familiar one for, for Americans anyway, was what it was. And that yard would be used by all sorts of people, including prostitutes who knew that this was a quiet place to go. And um, the Hardymans had a cat's meat sh- shop. You know, they sold cat's meat from the front of this property. So that places James's family connections bang next to well, exactly where one of the murders took place. But also, if you walk probably five minutes or less, you find Henny Street, where we know that um, James Hardiman lived during the 1880s, where his mother-in-law lived at the time of the Ripper murders. Um, so there's a very strong collection to that. And I mentioned Greater Rick Street, which is just next to that. So if you like, the, the heart of the... If, if you wanted to do that kind of geographic profiling, um, as someone like David has done, and you draw, you know, you draw your web, um, there are various points where you could pre- present the centre of that web, and it would be very close to Hanbury Street, Brick Lane, and Henney Street. That would be the centre of the Ripper's killing zone.
1: I think we're all familiar with the canonical five, but there are other murders in this general time period known as the Thames. Torso murders.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, if we were to look at the Thames torso, the Thames torso. So, these are a series of body parts, um, torsos at first, and then, and then the attached bits of those bodies that are found across London, arguably from the eighteen eighty four. There are a few in the eighteen in eighteen seventies, but we don't think <laughs> they're in any way connected to James. Partly on the fact that he would have to be quite a young teenager to have committed them um probably the, f- the first one that comes to attention is found at rainham which is in essex so again i ge- i guess your listeners wouldn't necessarily know where essex is but it's the county that's next to london so it's moving out towards the the sea and the thames of course runs right through the heart of london i'm sure any any images of of london would show the thames but the thames runs down to the sea and it runs down past rainham and out so a A waterman on the Thames found a floating package um, wrapped up um, and that was the torso of a woman, minus the head, minus the the arms, minus the legs. And then gradually over the next few days and weeks, uh, they managed to assemble that body from a series of parts that, that turned up. We then have another body which is found in September 1888 at Whitehall. Um, It's actually within the building site where they are building the new Scotland Yard or Scotland Yard, um, which, again, um, maybe a a term which your, your, your listeners are familiar with. It's the headquarters of London's Metropolitan Police. So where they are building a new police headquarters, somebody has deposited the torso of a dead woman. Another one is then found in June 1889 um, on the on the, the what's known become known as the Horsley Down torso but basically it's found on um, steps along the the River Thames it's washed up there i think in that case rather depressingly um, it's found because a, a group of small boys are throwing stones at it to try and sink it presumably not knowing what's inside it and then finally in September 1889 almost to the day um, after Annie Chapman, we mentioned 29 Hanbury Street, is found dead. Almost to the day, uh, Torso is found in Pinchon Street. So Pynchon Street is in Whitechapel, just south of Commercial Street. It's about four minutes walk, three, four minutes walk from where the body of Elizabeth Stride is found in September 1888. Uh, the end of september beginning of october so we have a series of torso murders that are taking place before during and after the canonical five ripper murders take place um, in around 1888 presumably while everyone has presumed previously committed by somebody completely different a separate serial killer is operating in london at that time and the police don't put these two things together, don't want to put two, these two things together, I might suggest. And the press are so concentrated on the Whitechapel murders that this gets relatively little press compared to what's going on in Whitechapel and Spitalfields. Right.
1: But, but the way the victims of each set of murders were treated, their bodies were, were treated, they're so different, right? Right. And that, in combination with the fact that they were found in a different part of the city, it seems pretty natural that investigators would believe that they were committed by two different people or or parties entirely.
2: Yeah, I, I can I can see that certainly, but um, I can also see why ways in which the police have have really not put like, joined the dots on these um, two sets of killings, if that's what they are. I mean, there are also quite a lot of differences. When you look at the Ripper murders, there are quite a lot of things which aren't the same. I mean, you take Elizabeth Stride, who had her throat cut, and nothing else, and everyone goes, well, and I think quite recently, but everyone goes, well, the killer was obviously spooked and ran away. But then the murder of Kate Eddowes is quite a lot different from the murder of Polly Nichols. Um, The murder of of Martha Tabram, who isn't always included in the series, who is murdered in in um, the early part of August 1888, whereas Polly is murdered at the very end of August. Martha Tabran doesn't have her throat cut, but she is stabbed repeatedly. I think it's 48 times in her abdomen um, and one through her chest, one to the heart. But now I think most experts would say that looks like part of this series because if you look at the victims, the victims are... I would suggest, are all women who are... I, I'm not going to say that they were prostitutes. I say these are all women who were prostituting themselves or engaged in that process or seemed to... or could be equated with it by the killer at the time which they met their, their deaths. And that's probably also true of the victims of the torso killer, the, the, the torso murderer. So I think there are enough connections if you wanted to make them. Um, And if you wanted to kind of take it forward, and I'm not familiar with American serial killers, but I am reasonably familiar with the murders of Peter Sutcliffe, um, the so-called Yorkshire ripper, who was murdering women in the... um, I think he murdered 15 women in the 1970s and 1980s in the north of England. And police at the time were not keen to link some of the murders. Now, If he murdered in a different part of the... If he murdered in Yorkshire, in places like Bradford and Leeds, but then when he attacked women in different parts of the city, or he he attacked several women who weren't killed, their non-fatal attacks, they didn't want to put those together with the series for all sorts of reasons, not least because it looked terrifying that this killer was just willingly going about and murdering women. So I think there's quite a lot of things we have to not take at face value, And I think it's worth asking questions about whether or not these two sets of murders were connected. I mean, it depends on what you think the killer's motivation was and his style and his method. And Andy, for example, says this is a, I think, what did he call it? A BTK killer. I don't know if you're familiar with that term. So That's bind, torture, kill. Sure. Sure. So if what this man wanted to do was to enjoy the process of killing, then it's entirely possible that he had different circumstances. Mm-hmm. He had different scenarios for different circumstances. Mm-hmm. So his desire was to get them off-site somewhere quiet and private where he could torture them. We think this is clearly what happened with the Pynchon Street murder because there seems to be evidence of torture on the, on the body where he would, he would gratify whatever his particular perverted desires were before finally dispatching them. And you can kind of see that with Mary Kelly in November, 1888, when he gets the opportunity off the street to really go to town. And he pretty much destroys Mary Kelly's body. And it may be that, you know, on some occasions, you know, he was pent up, but he, he was acting in a spontaneous way and he just didn't get that opportunity. Um, so I I can see why people say it's unlikely but I don't think it's impossible, and that was generally the premise that I went into this project with. Was was okay. Let's a bit like Sherlock Holmes, you know. Let's let's rule out what's impossible. But what's left? Why should we necessarily rule that stuff out? You know, it, the whole business of murder itself is something so alien to most of us that we we shouldn't necessarily think we understand why or how people do things.
1: Right, right. Are you suggesting that if the killer had had an opportunity to be with his Whitechapel victims longer, he would have dismembered them? He he, he did have ample time with with Mary Kelly, and and did not cut off her limbs.
2: He didn't. No, I mean he, he cut he cut her up really badly. and um, that is that is certainly the case. He did he didn't. No, I accept he didn't he didn't do that. But I mean by that time the heat was really on him you know he he kind of then disappears for a a long period of time before he before he potentially attacks again and in the cases of i think it's in the cases of polly nichols and certainly annie chapman the reports of the cuts that he made i think it's martin fido i revisited martin fido who sadly died i think last year or the year before but um in Martin Fido's 1988 book, I think. Uh, I think it's 1980. I think it was 100 years later. I mean, he makes the point that the killer nearly took the heads off of both Polly Nichols and Annie Chapman. So that suggests that, that potentially that was in his mind. He certainly had the power to do that. Um, I mean, it's not, it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that had he had more time with these women, he, he might have. But I accept that it's, it's it's one of the more difficult parts of the thesis to to agree on
1: yeah hardiman's proximity to the whitechapel victims especially Annie chapman where as you've said he was living just feet away i can see the fit there
2: that's a good fit i agree but i think the, the there's there's two other things and again it's it's recent stuff that andy's done but If he worked for Harrison Barber, the slaughterhouses, who who literally had slaughterhouses north, east, south, and west in London, and he was someone who was keen to earn money, so he's the sort of employee that everyone loves, you know, that that says, you know, yes, boss, I'll I'll work the weekend, I'll work extra hours, I'll do the bank holiday, no problem. He could have been quite a valuable person, but also that might have meant that he had opportunity to find places all over the capital where he could find – he wouldn't need to carry saws and knives around with him. They'd all be at these places. Um, London had a fantastic – still does have a fantastic – transport network, much better than any other British city at the time and and, and since. Um, so he had the ability to get across the capital really easily. And um, you know, if he was – he had family and friends living in, in and around – Clark and well, as i mentioned which is near smithfield market still a meat market today and was the was the central meat market in the 1880s so this is where most of the butchers are this where you buy your it's where butchers buy their meat so he's familiar with with london in lots of ways and we think also he was probably living around the strand um in in central london which is not too far from whitehall where he was probably getting treatment for his syphilis again so that this is a man who is free to move around probably has enough you know we're not talking about a rich person but we're talking about a person who has enough money to um, facilitate a lifestyle which allows him to you know probably not be too threatening people get held up to be jack the ripper or serial killers and they and they're they're cra they're crazy people if I can use that term you know they're, they're you know there's someone like Kozminski is you know, a crazy person. Why is a woman going to go anywhere near him um he's a crazy person whereas peter Sutcliffe in in Bradford in the in the 1980s was was a very plausible presentable and non entity sort of person. I think he was interviewed by the police nine times and let go on every occasion. This is somebody who's ordinary and probably even ability to be reasonably charming and to be the sort of person that a prostitute isn't going to go, no, thanks very much. I'm going to run a mile, but actually say, yes, okay, I'll go down that alley with you. Um, And at a time of heightened tension and fear about the Ripper, surely women are going to be going, going to be looking somebody up and down and going, hang on a minute. He looks a bit dodgy. Clearly the killer didn't look a bit dodgy because otherwise the women wouldn't go with him.
1: Right, yeah, so only one of the torso murder victims was ever identified, right?
2: Yeah, well, yeah, um I think her name is Jackson, and um, I think identif- that she is identified and presumed to be a prostitute, and I think in her case, also the suggestion is the evidence is that, that she had 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 a, a, an abortion performed upon her so. And we know that in uh, at least two, if not three, of the Ripper the canonical cases, uh, the uterus was removed or at least attacked. And in this case, it looked like the uterus was opened and a child taken out um, or a fetus taken out, which is horrific, uh, beyond horrific. But that would also kind of potentially link this in, link those cases together. It's another... another, If his... If he felt, Hardiman, that his child had died as a result of syphilis, um, potentially syphilis that uh, had been passed on by him, but, but given to him by a prostitute or inherited through his mother through prostitution, this is not the sort of person who takes responsibility for his own actions. He, he's, he's the sort of person who hits out at other people and blames them, everybody else, everything else for his own woes then there's a real targeted sense there, you know, attacking and removing uteruses. That's a very symbolic act of destroying women, um, attacking what makes them fundamentally different from men and kind of destroying the, the organ that gives life when, you know, it's like, you know, you took away my child. I'm going to take away your means of having a child. It's it's quite it's quite powerfully it's horribly twisted, but I can see a powerful symbolism in that.
1: Right. Does Hardiman fit as a suspect with modern profiles?
2: Yeah, I, I think I think that, that kind of profiling is difficult. I mean, but yeah, you know, this is this is someone with I mean he yeah, he, he has the he has the means and opportunity to to be a killer in that respect. He has the geographical, the, the location fits. As you can see, fits very nicely with Whitechapel, but I think it also fits more widely than that. Um, psychological profiling is is really hard. You know, it's not a, I don't think it's a, a clean science um, even today. But I think that um, some of those things would, would fit in. I think the last, the, the big FBI one kind of, wouldn't necessarily have profiled a horse slaughterer and so we might rule him out on that basis but but lots of other candidates are presented around that so i mean you know there are there are plenty of famous ripper candidates who have survived i mean you know montague Druitt, for example who seems to have much less that would credit his value as a, as a suspect than, than Hardiman. Um, even someone like Kozminsky. I live right by, I mean, literally, I can walk up to the top of my road and cross the road and I'm at Coney Hatch Asylum, which is where David Cohen, um, who I think Fido, uh, Fido has looked at, and um, and Kozminsky were housed as mental patients, mental health patients in the 1880s, 1890s. Um, it's no longer a, uh, a, a mental health institution but uh, it's, it's fancy fa- flats as so many of those sorts of buildings in London are but I mean these these characters have stayed Walter Sickert the artist have stayed quite to the front of popular imagination without very much attachment to any kind of real profiling that we might identify them so I I wonder why we I wonder sometimes, and I talk to my students about why why we valorize certain suspects over others, often without there being any genuine evidence to support their candidacy.
1: Back again after these messages.
2: What do you get when you take two childhood friends
0: with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze?
3: (laughs) You get the goofiest game in history, Queen's Podcast.
0: Hi, I'm Nathan. Deserving a fair time in the spotlight.
3: Right. So come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Cheers. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley. Not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps.
1: And we are back for a final time. Hardiman went by aliases, right?
2: Yeah, we think um, uh, Arnold, um, potentially. There's a, uh, I'm always a bit vague on this bit of it, but there's a, there's a case just after the Pinchin Street torso, around the Pinchin Street torso, where a man presents himself at the Daily Telegraph. The the uh, is it Daily Telegraph? No, it was the New York Herald. New York Herald, um, yeah. New York Herald, yeah. Offices in London, and 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 kind of it talks about there being a there's a murder in Whitechapel, and there hasn't been. They, it's before they find the Pinchin Street torso. It's kind of weird. Uh, and then hands himself into the police. And is held, and is probably followed by the police. Thereafter, they let him go, but they, they they keep an eye on him for some time. I think it's kind of interesting. I, I I see if I have a picture in my head of Hardiman, it's it is somebody who is caught up in the the game of this, and probably that isn't how it started, but perhaps that's how it develops. Again, we come back to all the letters sent to. The news agencies and the police, um, most of which I suspect have nothing to do with, and are not sent by the killer. But that's that business of, of the killer sometimes injecting themselves into the into the police investigation. And I wouldn't be surprised if if Hardiman is trying to show how clever he is, or, or perhaps he's just tiring of of this. Um, we think he dies of tuberculosis eventually, probably. And compounded by his his by being syphilitic but that's going to weaken him maybe and his mind is going as well maybe these things are i think the the murder of francis coles in 1891 in, in february 1891 is a very tired murder it looks like somebody who's at, the, at towards the end of their life and unable to do what he used to do so i think creating aliases, is presenting himself as someone he's not um trying to be having that sense of trying to forge his own identity, is it's difficult in the 19th century to rise above your station. Your listeners live in a society where social, social mobility is, is much greater than it is even in 21st century Britain. But class divisions are so much deeper in the 19th century, and someone like Hardiman, I think, probably wanted to be thought of as, as, as someone else. And I've, I've experienced that with other characters as a woman I've been researching at the moment, completely unrelated, except that she's at the same time. And she's clearly trying to forge an identity, which is different from the one that she was born with. And so I think using aliases, dressing differently, these are all things that people might use.
1: Yeah, I, I do want to go back for just a minute to this man who walked into the offices of the New York Herald. He gave his name as John Cleary. He said he had information about a murder. Yeah, And it was, by the way, on the one-year anniversary of Annie Chapman's brutal death. Yeah. Why do you think this man was Hardiman?
2: I think that they can't trace John Cleary. They spend a lot of time, the police, trying to find him. And I think that it's circumstantial, but... It's the circumstances of that, you know. It's the it's the, it's the it's the dating. Uh, it's the finding um, on the thirteenth of September, I think, of eighteen eighty nine, of uh, a pickle jar containing the fetus, which had been taken from Elizabeth Jackson, you know, which, which is on the anniversary of of James's wife Sarah's death. Hardiman, if it is Hardiman who's was, he's who was giving his name as Arnold at the time, and we're linking that to Cleary. Is is handing himself in at the police station which was dealing with the Ripper murders, and he could have handed himself in at any police station in London, but he handed himself in at that one. I think that there's just there's just too much there's it's all circumstantial stuff, Eric, and I'm you know <laughs> I'm always uneasy with circumstantial evidence, but I think that 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 andy is convinced that these this is these hardiman and arnold are all the same they're all the same person
1: sure Well, you write in your book that the police did have a description of this man and they noted that he had an inflamed spot on his left cheek yeah. was wearing a handkerchief around his neck and he walked with a shuffle right
2: but I think the, the important thing there is is what's that phrase? Um, he resembled a developing Whitechapel resident. It's a developing bit. It's that 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 kind of person on the uh, trying to better themselves, trying to trying to to be different. You know, yeah. I mean, the, the the inflamed spot, the shuffling, the the fact that he's wearing a a scarf to potentially to conceal. The, the markings on his neck. Um the, these are all things that we could associate with syphilis. You know, that I think that's that kind of that kind of makes sense. I mean Andy Andy is I've never been able to trace this and I look at prison records, but but Andy found a character called Alf, James Alf Hardiman, who was a prisoner in Wandsworth Prison, one of London's bigger uh, South London prisons. Who fits with this. He's got you know he, he fits the description as well. I think that's, you know, these are all things that we might make that person, you know, this is the New York Herald's description of the person who came into their offices. And it also fits with potential descriptions of Hardiman. So I think when you put those things together, you know, again, you know, let's go back to Sherlock Holmes. It's not impossible. So is it probable? You know, that's that's where we that's where we land. Without the ability to prove it, we can prove none of this. That's, but I would argue that probably every Ripper book can prove cannot prove that their identifiable suspect is the Ripper. I think that um, my conclusion from Andy's evidence, and when when we we've talked it through and the, and we've investigated it together, is: Am I convinced that James Hardiman is Jack the Ripper? I don't know. But well, I am convinced that, that, you know, should we be able to go back in time and present James Hardiman as a suspect, I suspect the police would want to interview him for quite a long time.
1: So I do want to ask you, I have another book of yours called Murder Maps, Crime yeah. Scenes Revisited, uh, Phrenology to Fingerprint, 1811 to 1911. I got it for a research project I was working on, and I fell in love with it, and it led me to you, your other work, including this Jack the Ripper book. Yeah. Would you tell us about Murder Maps, what the purpose of the book is, and how you put it together?
2: Yeah, well, it was it a it's a delightful book. I mean, <laughs> I say that, and it's all about gruesome murders, but I found it a delightful. I was approached. It's one of those lovely moments where I was approached by the publishers, Thames and Hudson, who who um, produce beautiful books. They produce beautiful books with lots of pictures, lots of illustrations, uh, photo- photographs, and their their books are actually driven by having. And I spoke when I spoke to the the commissioning editor, Crispin. He was like, "Our books are." books which obviously have a purpose as books but if we don't have images we haven't got anything so when they wanted to write a book about wanted me to write the book about murders and we talked about the concept it had to revolve around illustrations which is why the book isn't about medieval murders because there are no photographs of medieval murders and arguably actually that that pushed it into the 19th century and it's kind of back to the beginning of this conversation in a way, because this is the time when murder news, murder stories become such a popular thing within popular culture. So it grows in the 18th century and it comes into the 19th century. And what we talked about was the idea of using these images, these really powerful images, you know, like Alphonse Bertillon's, the scene of crime picture, you know, that kind of Portrait parlay. that's it, Portrait Parley. The the images of criminals that tells you something about them, you know, capturing that mugshot. I think perhaps that's the term you would be familiar with in the States. Sure. Yeah. So it's battillion that invents the mugshot, you know, and you can't do that without photography. So you can't do it before you've invented photography, but then you can apply photography. And then taking a picture of the scene of crime, that is so powerful. So there are, I mean, as you're aware, there are images in this book which are, some of the most powerful are those Parisian scenes, murder scenes, you know, with the victim lying there or the, or the room where it all happened. So that kind of led us to thinking, well, we've got these fantastic images uh, and then many more. Can we go across the whole world and can we sort of try and think about how crime detection is, is changing? Because this is a period, you start the beginning of the 19th century with pretty much no forensics at all. And by the time we get to the end of the 19th century, we've got scene of crime, we've got mug shots, and we're beginning to have fingerprints. We're beginning to have the idea of detect- detective forces all over the world, you know, probably led by the French, you know, developed in the States, in, in the United Kingdom as well. We, we, we've got the detective. And of course, we've got popular cultural characters of the detective like Sherlock Holmes, or, or the characters in Wilkie Collins, you know, the Moonstone, in Dickens. We've got detective characters. So the public are kind of falling in love with the idea of detection and detective stories. And um, we can go all around the world looking at murders, and that's what the book does. It, you know, it, it has murders in England. It has murders in Scotland. It has murders in the United States. It goes to Australia. I mean, it has that, that, the terrible case of Vachet in France, You know, the, the sort of wandering agricultural serial killer who wandered all over f- parts of France murdering people like leaving a trail of devastation behind him. It looks like sort of bandit gangs in Italy and places. Basically, anywhere where we could find a story and an image or images, we, we strove to put together um, the book. And, and I think that the book is lovely. I mean, uh, it, again, it's a horrible subject, but it's beautifully done. And my work on that was mostly to write the introduction, which I kind of did as a sort of chronological history of of um, development of forensics, and obviously they only gave me a few hundred words, so I can only write so much. And then a series. Then they divided it up by some big cases, like Vacher, like the Ripper murders, for example, and then smaller cases. So in some places, you just get a small vignette; you just get a little bit of a story with. I think it's like 150 words or something, or maybe it's even less than that, and a couple of images or one image. And we also tried to think about at the end. There's a kind of glossary gazetta, which kind of looks at what sorts of murders these are, domestic, um, because I think you know, you, can, you can group murders into particular types. So there is the domestic murder, you know, born out of jealousy, love gone wrong, that kind of stuff. There are murders that are related to crime, so a robbery, that kind of stuff. There are political murders, assassinations, and there are sexually motivated murders. So I guess as an academic, I, I kind of like to think of typologies, um, I tried to sort of you know, think of how I can group things men killing men, men killing women women killing women killing men you know those sorts of groupings and the book tries to sort of kind of do that and um, yeah so it it, it it kind of takes that hundred years which really also charts the development of newspapers as well at the same time and that fascination with it. And, and I'm really pleased that the book's been translated into French and Italian and Spanish. I got a lovely email from a lady in Naples in not particularly good English, but mu- much better than my Italian, saying that she bought the book and was, was enjoying it. And I think they've made a follow up to this, which is entirely focused on the United States, I guess, because you have a lot more murderers than we do.
1: <laughs> yeah, you you do cover a, a wide variety of cases. Yeah. In some in the United States including HH H. Holmes.
2: Yeah, HH H. H. Holmes is a weird character isn't he and um and I know some people still hold a candle to him being the um the ripper murderer. I think Belle Gunness I thought she was really weird. Isn't she the ones that keeps inviting men to her house as a sort of, you know, she's a wealthy widow sort of thing and then she just quietly murders them. Right. Yeah. Um, and I was like, "Whoa!" <laughs> There's. It, it, it's. A, I mean, when you dip into this world of murder, you do find things which are often stranger than fiction. So I'm sure we all listen and watch, and you know, we watch, listen to great podcasts like this, but we also watch, you know, true crime on the television and uh, in the movies, and and some of it you think, "Well, that's a bit far fetched." It's only a bit far fetched until you actually start reading about real true crime which is pretty weird
1: that's true yeah <laughs> so you don't have a website but your books are definitely available in bookstores online
2: i think that you know i'm sure other places are available but um i think most things are on amazon you can find you certainly find jack and the thames torso through amazon london shadows i think um, my students joke that you can buy perfectly good secondhand copies. So, why would I buy a new one, Drew? And, um, I, I wrote a textbook which is published by Bloomsbury, which is called Crime Policing and Punishment. And it covers, it's England, it covers the end of the 17th century right up to the First World War. And that's my kind of, I, I guess, if you've got listeners who want the kind of a, a readable version of, of, of a kind of the long history of crime punishment development of policing development of punishment you know the court system in england again my students and my colleagues at other universities will say that's quite a readable version of that so it's not true crime stories it's the kind of it's it's the building blocks it's the it's the backbone of that you know of, of how we understand it and I, I don't think you can study crime and true crime without understanding the development of things like detection i think that's really important otherwise it, it doesn't make a lot of sense unless you put history or only makes sense in context that's really important i think but yeah should be able to get in there i mean i i i kind of have a work website it's called the police magistrate but it's a blog site since i've been writing this current book called netherworlds i haven't done anything with it but it's still up there and i will pick it up again probably once the proofs for this book are finished which should be sometime into November December and I'll probably pick up doing the the blog site again I think it's just called the police magistrate and it's tales from the 19th century police courts in London and again you know they're little vignettes they're' they're, they're short stories and um, they're, they're factual but they're, they're they're my little interpretations of what goes on in the courts and and they're quite some of them are quite poignant quite some of them are funny some of them are very sad but if you like history and you like crime and you're interested in the Victorian London you'd find that I think you find yeah. My wife even will read those because they're short. She won't read the books, but she'll read the she'll read the blogs. (laughs) Well, well,
1: super. I'll put a link to your blog in the show notes, and thanks so much for coming on and presenting your case for James Hardiman. It's been very interesting.
2: It's been great to talk talk to you about Eric and um and thanks to everybody who is listening to this. Um and um yeah, stay safe and well.
1: Again, I have been speaking to Drew Gray. He is the author of Jack in the Thames' Torso Murders, A New Ripper. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.